It's, if this is your first time joining with us uh, here at Wileye, uh, maybe even in a long time, uh, just to catch you guys up, uh, we've been going through a sermon series and we've been journeying verse by verse through the book of Galatians. Um, and I have the honor and privilege this morning to tie up that series. Um, and we're going to be picking up where we were last week and we're going to start in Galatians 5.25. But before we do that, I wanted to kind of open up with these two illustrations. Um, and I found out and you can kind of get rid of the picture once people have seen it. Awesome. Can we kind of get that picture out of the... I don't want you guys to be distracted. So um, there's two uh, kind of films that I wanted to kind of bring in for an illustration to kind of guide us to this place to reorient us to know what's kind of going on. And it's all kind of built up on this understanding of what harmony is. So this first illustration comes from this fictional uh, documentary about this tribe. And in this tribe, there's this very unique sense of harmony. It's very strange. What's so strange about this isolated, unique tribe is that there's no sense of ownership in this tribe. In fact, there's no arguments. There's no disagreements. There's no jealousy because life in this tribe is harmonious. It's a simple life. There's no alarm clocks that wake you up at 6 in the morning. (laughs) There's no cars so you don't have to try to fight traffic at the Middle Street Merge every morning. None of that exists. Everything they needed was provided through hunting with one another and sharing in the hunt with one another. Life was simple for everyone in this tribe. But one day, This is so funny. Don't even watch the movie. This summarizes the whole thing. One day, out of nowhere, a plane is flying over this tribe, and the pilot of the Cessna little plane kind of chucks his Coke bottle, because he's done with his Coke bottle, and he kind of just chucks it out the window. And it lands into this community, and someone from the community finds it. And they're like, wow, what is this? He's captivated by it. He, he brings it back to the community because they're all about harmony. They're all about sharing everything. And this whole community stands in awe of this Coke bottle. I don't know, for some of you young guys, you guys don't know what a Coke bottle looks like. <laughs> um, and you missed your chance, but don't show that picture again. Uh, but this Coke bottle, it's this hard substance, and, and they've never had a tool like this before. In fact, every day, they find a new use for this tool. Everybody developed a need for it. It became the most useful thing that they've ever had to share. But for the first time in their lives, here's one thing, one thing that they had difficulty in sharing. Unfamiliar feelings began to arise. Anger, jealousy, and violence broke out. People got hurt. A once harmonious community completely ruined by a piece of trash, by something worthless, a disposed Coke bottle. In the same way, I don't know if you guys watched late 80s cartoons, but I grew up on them, and uh, there's this one episode from this one cartoon in the late 80s that captured a very identical scenario where this wealthy billionaire 
finds himself escorted by his family to this far land called the land of Tralala. And they, they bring him to this land in order to aid kind of as an ailment to his money sickness anxieties. Because of all of his money, he was like, I need a place, you know, uh, for, for just like a, a place to relax where money is not a thing that stresses me out. So his family brings him to the land of Tralala. And everyone here in the land of Tralala lived in harmony. Again, this harmony that we, we see again. But this harmony is based on how they met each other's needs. And it was built on this concept of care for one another to the point where there was no currency ever needed. Can you imagine living in a community where you didn't need your wallet? There was no Apple Pay. Oh, awesome. But this is what's really strange. In this utopian society where there was no need for wallets, they saw me needs and they met them together. But this all comes to an end when someone finds a shiny bottle cap. The irony of it all is that it came from one of the passengers. It came from the billionaire that flucked it out the window. <laughs> and, and, and all this harmony that's built up on the strength of humanity just falls apart over worthless things. So what's interesting here is it seems like we live in this context where many people desire the benefits of a harmonious community. But sadly, harmony, if ever achieved, easily is lost over worthless things. Harmony is so delicate, especially when we attempt to achieve harmony by ourselves and with our own strength. And in this pas passage, the, the, the orienting point for us this morning is Paul rem is reminding the Galatians that true harmony can only exist when their faith is working through love. Again, our, kind of the namesake of our series it can only exist when their faith is working through love. So the title of this morning's sermon is Live by the Spirit as one body. And so please turn with me to Galatians. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is Galatians 5, verse 25. Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. Paul begins this section with a conditional clause that if we live by the Spirit, we should also keep in step with the Spirit. And, and this New Testament scholar makes a really, really strong argument um, where he says this, quote, unquote, Paul does not want his readers to sit back contentedly thinking, yes, I am indeed living by the Spirit. Instead, understood conditionally, he wants them to ponder is this really true of me? Do, do I live by the Spirit? Do, do I stay in step with the Spirit? Something I think the scholar might have missed and another scholar gets is that he points out to the pronouns of this we and us. And if you've been kind of journeying with us through this series, um, Paul is very intentional on in how he uses these pronouns. In fact, this we and us is all throughout the entire letter. 
What Paul is expressing here is that he has a, a shared faith with them. He's saying that there's one spirit. We share in the same spirit when he uses this we and us language. That God's indwelling presence rests in each one of them, the same spirit. That they are knit together as one body by the spirit of God himself. I also want us to pay attention to this phrase and the Greek word for helping us understand this phrase, keep in step with the Spirit, is this picture, as Dimu explains, uh, it's this picture of soldiers kind of marching in a line together, troops falling in line with each other. And this picture seems to suggest that Paul is not just talking about the relationships these believers individually have with God because of the Spirit, but what he's painting is a both end. He's also saying that believers have this relationship now in Christ with other believers because of the Spirit coming before God. There's a one another aspect to this. In fact, the literal rendering uh, of this passage is kind of, uh, kind of a fun play on words where he says, if we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit, also we should walk. If we move to verse 26, uh, Paul includes this, this warning about how Christians should walk with one, another's, with, with one another. And he, he's explaining what happens when Christians do not live according to the flesh. We kind of talked about this a little bit in Sunday school um, earlier uh, when Tyler and Troy and I were talking kind of about, like, a lot of times we as believers, we kind of fight this internal battle within ourselves where we have the new nature of Christ, we have the Spirit, but it's also battling with our former desires. And Paul talks about this and addresses this in the previous chapter in Galatians 5.16, where this form of desire is that we want to please the desires of our flesh. So being aware of this internal opposition Paul is saying to these believers who have a like faith, he's saying, don't go back to your default. Don't let yourself become conceited. And it's not always practical to study the etymology of every single word that we go through in a text, but here, it's helpful. It's very helpful. Um, the Greek word that Paul uses for conceited is somewhat of a, you can kind of say it's kind of like a compound word, where it's linking together these two words, kenos, empty, and Paul links it in with doxa, praise, or renown, where he says that conceited is this form of empty praise, chasing after things that are hollow. This word results in this understanding that humanity has this natural default of pursuing empty praise. I think the King James renders it vainglory. Paul is saying that if we truly desire to live in the Spirit together, if we truly desire to be a healthy community of believers, one church, we must think rightly of ourselves, that we are all sinners for, for believers. We are all sinners who belong to Christ. 
And we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, as it says in Galatians 5.24. And we must be aware of our natural tendencies, our defaults, to provoke one another and envy one another. We can't be blindsided by this. So the first point this morning I want to address um, that the text says is that living by the Spirit guides believers to faithfully walk with one another. But what does faithfully walking with one another look like? What does living by the Spirit together look like? And what does faith working through love together look like? Paul continues in chapter 6, verse 1. He writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's really funny. Um, I was kind of joking with Matt about this. Uh, I was like, why did you cut the text this way? Um, and I realized how much it relates um, to the previous ending of chapter 5. But an entire sermon itself, maybe even two sermons, can be built off of this section alone. But for this morning, as we kind of move through this, as this kind of points us to our second uh, general t- uh, point this morning, I want us to think about what Paul means with this beginning marker, this identifying marker when he says, brothers. What does Paul mean? It must be important because he bookends chapter 6 with brothers, where it begins in verse 1 and is at the very end of chapter 6. He ends the letter with brothers. In fact, he uses the word brothers, this identifying marker, he uses it 11 times in this one short letter. What does he mean when he says brothers? Paul is simply addressing his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians, and how they ought to relate to one another because of their faith in Christ. He does all of that with this one word, Adelphoi, with this one word, brothers. Baked into this one word is this concept of mutual love, this understanding of a family, and this deep affection that they share. After that one word, Paul uses this phrase, you who are spiritual, to point to the fact that the spirituality of the Christian is not static on this side of death. On this side of death, Christians are not perpetually perfect 
in the Spirit and should not be perpetually caught in or surprised by their sin. Paul is instructing those who are abiding in Christ, living in the Spirit, to restore that fallen brother or sister. But how? How, how are we? What's the posture of restoring a brother or sister? He says, with gentleness. It's important to clarify that this restoration is not an ends justifies the means type of repair. This is a gentle reconciling that is defined by Paul's list in the previous chapter. Restoration identified as unconditional love. Restoration that is expressed in joy. A peaceful reconciliation. One that is marked by long-suffering. Where there is generosity. And it's dependable and full of meek-minded care. This Greek word restore kind of is this picture of mending of torn fishnets. It's this kind of this picture of this medical usage of the term of resetting a broken fracture. With this gentleness in how they restore their fallen brothers or sisters, Paul also seems to give a warning that it's possible that they might feel tempted either to possibly fall into the same sin that they're trying to help their brother out of, or perhaps as they're kind of restoring their brother or sister from sin, that they, they, they even fall into the sin of conceit with this feeling of piety, like holier than thou, like I can help you, like I am, I am a mature Christian, thinking that it's only coming from their strength. Paul goes on to exhort them to bear one another's burdens. And it's important to note that this is an indicative statement. It's a command. It's an exhortation. This is not optional for Christians. This is a necessity. In fact, this phrase, bear one another's burdens, it it busts this myth of Christian self-sufficiency. The Christian life is defined by the one another's. Something that we continually kind of fall back into, we frequently address is this phenomenon that occurred kind of in Christianity in the late 70s and 80s, uh, where Christians were kind of groomed into this belief, it's, it's just me, my Bible, and Jesus. Because of that, understanding church, meeting together as the community of God, discipleship, the one another's, it all became optional. It became Christian recreation. Christians have lost sight of what it means to be the church, to be serving one another, being the family of God. It would kind of produce phrases like, if I had enough time, I would disciple somebody. If only I had enough time, I, I, would, I would gather for Sunday worship. But I'm busy. And busyness aside, busyness happens. But we can't treat Christianity and these indicatives as recreational. 
It's possible that Paul was also taking this jab at this Greco-Roman maxim of self-sufficiency, and we see it even today in our culture that the young man needs to be trained to be self-sufficient. But that's not what Paul is getting at here, and that's not what the Christian life is supposed to be about, and that's what Paul is addressing. He says that when it comes to the one another's, there are two problems with this myth of self-sufficiency. First, some Christians, this is kind of sad, some Christians feel that they don't have any desire to bear someone else's burden. They think that helping someone in their burden is below them. It might come out in phrases like, we worked hard enough for our faith, so should they. But the second problem with the myth of Christian self-sufficiency is that some Christians refuse to let others help them because they don't want to seem weak. They don't want to admit their own shortcomings. And maybe the intention could be that they don't want to bother anybody. And in in this way, there's almost a subtlety of pride that just kind of sneaks up on us a little bit. Where instead of asking for help, we choose, we, we choose to, to just kind of man it up, slap on a smile, and pretend things are okay to the very people that God has placed in our lives to help us. Christian self-sufficiency is a lie that will dismantle the harmony of a church. So while I Baptist church, including myself, we must learn how to bear one another's burdens because we all at times will be on that faulting side. We all might be the burden carriers or the ones with the burdens who are unable to carry on their own. We need community. We need the brothers and sisters here in this church. I want you to take notice very briefly to the apparent contradiction that we see with verse 5 and verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says that they need to carry each other's burdens, but in verse 5, he writes that each will have to bear his own load. And it seems a little strange. It seems like it contradicts. But to kind of help this apparent contradiction, let's look at the words that he employs. Burdens and load. In verse 2, Paul talks about this oppressive, weighty burden. One New Testament scholar uh, explains that this is like the picture of a heavy weight or stone that someone is required to carry for a very long distance. Where in verse 5, he uses this word load, which kind of refers to kind of like a knapsack or a backpack, referring to a load a believer must carry and is able to carry to the throne of Christ at the judgment seat. In fact, we know that Paul is kind of uh, talking about foreshadowing to this future tense when he uses this verb, shall bear, referencing the future day of judgment before the throne. And so this is not a matter of salvation, but a matter of what we did with the gift of salvation that we were given. What did we do with it? That's what Christians will be judged on. And um, my words fall short. I really love the way that John Stott kind of explains this word play. Stott writes, and I quote, So we are to bear one another's burdens, which are too heavy for a man to bear alone. But 
there is one burden which we cannot share, and that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry yours. Church, I think it's very important to clarify, especially as we go through this text, that the only reason why this load is bearable is because Christ died for that burden. It's very important to clarify. Verse 5 is saying that the reason that you and I are are able to bear this load is because Christ was crucified for that load. Christ, believers, Christ died for your sin. And because of that, you now have the ability to now bear this load before Him on the day of judgment. Before that, it was a burden that you couldn't carry. Those who are listening Um, either here that have gathered or those of us that are online, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, this is good news. You see, every person, whether they're a Christian or not, they bear a load. But for those who are in Christ, we bear a load only manageable through Christ's death and resurrection. Christ then is the metric that we are supposed to test our own work, as he says in Galatians 6.4, because he is our measuring rod of righteousness. Martin Luther once wrote, a Christian must have, I love this, a Christian must have broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burdens of his brothers and sisters. I pray that that be true of our church. I pray that our church here on 21st Avenue becomes known as a church that is known for burdens being born for each other, that this is the place where believers can come knowing that they can come struggling and that their brothers and sisters will help shoulder those burdens together, that there's a felt reality that we are truly one body in Christ. Church, this is faith working through love. This is what it means to live by the Spirit together. This is what it means that Christians are enabled, they're enabled to bear one another's burdens. On Wednesday night at the pre-sermon Bible study, uh, we got to kind of address the difficulties, somewhat mishandlings of verse 6. Um, but in short, uh, Paul seems to be addressing this unique burden for the church and how they are to share all good things, prioritizing the relationship around God's Word. And Paul moves forward after that. And, and He talks about this concept that can be summarized into this logical phrasing of sowing and reaping, where he says, if you sow things of the flesh, when you sow things of the flesh, you will receive corruption. It's this image of decomposition or a decomposing body. You will receive kind of death, corruption. But sow things of righteousness things of the Spirit, and you will reap things of life, things that are eternally good. And through that, Paul gives them this negative imperative, reminding them that they cannot mock God. How does this relate to the whole sowing and reaping? He's explaining that you can't outwit Him. In a sense, 
Some Christians might be able to outwit their brothers and sisters in Christ, making others believe, wow, she's super spiritual. Or, man, if I could be just as mature in my faith as that guy. But they're fooling everybody. We might be able to fool others, but no one, Paul is saying, no one can outsmart God. Psalm 44, 21 even says that God knows the secrets of the heart. Paul ends this section, verse 10, admonishing that whenever Christians have the opportunity, they must do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Look at how Paul identifies two camps. Everyone and those who are in the household of God. But notice how Paul places an emphasis on the care Christians have for other Christians. And it might seem very peculiar to us today. But Paul seems to make this emphasis of what we talked about in the Ezra Nehemiah series of this covenant community. Paul is saying, you have not only made a commitment to being obedient to Christ, but you also have made a commitment to serving the people, the one another's, who are in Christ. Again, living by the Spirit enables believers to bear one another's burdens. Paul continues in verse 11 saying, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. There's a lot of speculation regarding verse 11 that we don't have time to address this morning. Um, But what is important to note is that Paul is kind of doing these two things with this unique uh, emphasis uh, that we don't really see in the other letters. In this postscript, not only is he authenticating the entirety of the whole letter, but he's also summing up his charge for the Galatians. He explains, and this is the next point, he explains that those who do not live by the Spirit They're unable to love one another. He reiterates a point that he makes in previous chapters in Galatians, that these false teachers, those who are trying to persuade them into the false gospel, they are hypocrites. Their motives are built on their vainglory, their conceit. All they want are the bragging rights. They only wished to boast in their conversion numbers. They wanted to boast before man and God. They force you to show their commitment to the law, to be circumcised, but they themselves do not even keep the law. They are like the men of David in 1 Samuel 18 who will slaughter hundreds only for skin trophies. One New Testament scholar, Thomas Lee, writes that these men, these false teachers, were simply trophy hunters. And I think there's, a, this is not in my notes, but I, I think there's a little bit of somewhat of a principle for us, even in ministry, to look at. What are we boasting in? You know, as an aside, I mean, we as a church, do we boast in things that aren't Christ? 
Do we have our own trophies, our own number trophies, things that we do that are not of Christ and His blood? Coming back to the text, Paul reminds the Galatian Christians that those who attempt to earn their salvation, those false teachers promoting a false gospel, they will persecute believers instead of face persecution for the cross of Christ. Those who do not live by the Spirit truly are unable to love one another. In this final section, Paul explains that those who live by the Spirit glorify God with one another. Paul writes, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor circumcision, but a new creation. And as for all those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. See, there, there are many things to boast about. Intellectual prowess, physical strength, military power, achievements and commitments, social statuses, financial success, maybe even political esteem. But here, Paul says that he rejects any form of boasting except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we're somewhat at a disadvantage here in the 21st century West to see how strikingly bizarre this type of boasting has accomplished. You know, if this was really believed to be the first generation of Christians in the late 40s AD, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't sporting the latest Christian pop culture shirts with the crosses on it. You know, they weren't clad with these gold chains with uh, a crucified cross pendant. You know, no. That didn't exist. Their understanding of the cross was this. It was violent. It was this shameful death that was too crude to even talk about in public. Paul's statement here would have been seen as audacious. How can you say that, Paul? So why then does Paul say that he will boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? What makes this so significant and boastworthy? In this one event, Christ crucified on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself, as it says in 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. While I Baptist church family, let us not grow weary of boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As C.T. Studd once wrote, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it, and I love this, let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. Are you boasting in Christ this morning? 
In verses 15 and 16, Paul brings us back to his thoughts in the earlier part of chapter 5. He echoes this earlier point that neither the circumcision nor the uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that matters is that you are made a new creation in Christ. Only those who are a new creation in Christ will experience this shalom, this peace, and this eternal mercy from God. So who then is this Israel of God that that Paul is referring to? Tons of theories. As as Matt has explained before, tons of ink has been spilled over this one passage or this one phrase. Um, But, you know, one in particular I find very helpful for us and our understanding, and it comes from Isaiah 11, one of my favorite passages. Um, And Isaiah Isaiah is, is talking about this collected people of God from the four corners of the earth, from the north and the south and the east and the west. Paul's saying all believers who are in Christ, who inherit this promise made to Abraham, that we are not now adopted heirs, children of God, and I love this, almost coming from Romans, who are like the wild olive shoots, grafted in among the others, and now sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Paul is talking about the one another still. Paul is closing this letter saying, when believers live by the Spirit, they will experience peace and mercy. When believers live by the Spirit, they will experience the presence of Jesus' grace in their relationships with other believers. When believers live by the Spirit, they will indeed glorify God to one another, for one another, and glorify God with one another. Our hope and our prayer this morning is that God leads us to be a church that lives by the Spirit together and perseveres in our love for one another. So begin to kind of close this morning. Um, I want to talk to a couple of different audiences. Uh, For those of you who know Christ, those of you who call this church your home, I want to encourage you guys, we need to be the church. We need to be the church that knows how to bear one another's burdens. We need to be a church that practices gentle restoration for the falling brothers or sisters that we have. And that shares all good things with everyone, especially for those in the household of faith. So I want you to kind of turn to your right and left. And I mean it. (laughs) So I want you guys, I can see you guys. Um, But I want you guys to look to your right and left. And this is something that I don't think we do enough. Especially when we sing in worship. Especially when we sit in church service, we kind of paint these walls between us thinking like, okay, and it goes back to the individuality of Christianity. I want you guys to look to your right and to your left. These are the brothers and sisters that you have made a covenant with, to share in burdens with. When one of us struggles, we come to them and we shoulder the load with them. I want you to understand that if you are in Christ, you have the responsibility, a covenantal commitment to share or to care for those in the family of God. 
May we learn as a church to work out our faith in love, a church body that is enabled to express the fruit of the Spirit to one another. If you're looking for ways to get there, a vehicle to get you to learning how to care for one another, come talk to me. We have a place for that. For those of you that are here this morning on the other side who do not know Christ, thank you for gathering with us online or or in person. If you don't know Christ, we're glad you're here. But we also want to identify if you don't know Christ, you've been bearing a burden that you were never meant to carry on your own. Maybe you feel frustrated. Maybe you feel worn in sin. But you were never meant to carry that load on your own. And I want to urge you something very important. If there's one thing that you need to pay attention to is this point. If you do not know Christ, turn to him. Because only he, only Christ can shoulder this load for you. Turn to him. In fact, in Matthew 11, this is a frequented passage. Jesus gives this invitation. Jesus himself gives this invitation to those people who bear those burdens. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you do not know Christ this morning, I want to urge you, turn to him. Only in Christ will you find rest, peace, and a family of brothers and sisters eagerly waiting to walk alongside you in this journey. This is what it means to work out our faith in love. This is what it means to live by the Spirit. This is what it means to be the church. 